Welcome to Sarian Strategic Partners Podcast, a podcast focused on pre-transaction planning strategies and commentary for founders, entrepreneurs, and executives. Our team's mission is to help ensure that you obtain the maximum net value from your life's work. We work with you to develop pre-transaction planning strategies to help position you for personal financial success by identifying key tax, estate, and gifting issues prior to a sale or exit of your company. I'm your host, Greg Sarian, CEO and founder of Sarian Strategic Partners. Well, welcome to another one of our audio podcasts on shepherding your company through a transaction. And today we've got a great topic on how do you guide your team? How do you help your staff think about moving your company towards an event, whether that's a sale or an IPO? What are some key issues that founders and executives need to be thinking about well in advance of that transaction as they're growing their company towards an event? So we're going to speak at this from a couple perspectives today. Uh, I have Marsha O'Connor. Marsha is the CEO and founder of the O'Connor Group. They are a nationally recognized human resources and talent acquisition firm based in the Philadelphia area, and they've worked with scores of emerging growth companies in this process. And Marsha is going to speak about really key important things to do at an entity level going through this process. And then I'm going to speak about how you can be educating and help, helping to guide your team at a personal level through this transaction. So, so Marcia, thank you for carving out some time to share a perspective from, from, from your uh, many years of doing this. And I guess my first question would be, why is it important if a company knows they're going to be moving towards an event like a sale or an IPO, why is it important to have an HR team in place? And thanks, Greg, for that introduction. It's always good to be here and to be a special guest. In, in regards to when you're going to go IPO, it's really important to make sure that you have a lot of things in place, such as a handbook and your policies. You know, all of that should be really designed beforehand. I would say at least three to six months beforehand, because you're going through all that due diligence on those two. You want to make sure all those pieces are in place, even like understanding your performance evaluation method and all too. And I always tell people, you know, when you have a company, when you're at least 10 employees, you should really be thinking about putting an HRIS system in, a human resource information system. So that manages all of your people intake in regards to offer letters, in regards to all your agreements, you know, on your handbook, everything being online. Because if your goal is to become larger and all, it's only going to make your job a lot easier in the long run if everything is put together properly. That's a good, that's a beginning start. You know, technology is evolving, uh, Marsha, and it could be overwhelming. Why does it help to have this buttoned up when a company is considering going through a, a change or an IPO or a sale? Oh, for so many reasons, Greg, I would say that number one, it actually shows your investors too, that you basically are taking, you know, um, an interest in your people and where they're going and what they're doing. Because a really good HRIS system is going to be able to maintain all of your employee data. It's going to be able to pull a census at the whip of your fingertips. You know, you're going to see basically all your bonus changes and everything else that has to be a part of it. And really good HRIS systems have modules included for like your training and development and maintaining your benefits and your 401k plan. And I don't know about you, but I would say most of my team now 
sees all of that information via their phone. And that's how they do that. So you wanna make sure that that technology you're using is also phone accessible and very easy to use because if not, you're adding more time and effort into your HR process and you should never be doing that. And you should also be looking for it down the road long-term so that you can grow from 10 employees all the way to like 5,000 employees. Because your investors are gonna wanna say, how do you value your people? And if you don't have agreements at your fingertips, if you don't have your I-9s at fingertips on all two, it's gonna create a lot of headaches for you down the road. Got it. So in thinking about your people, Marsha, you know your company's moving at a quick pace, you're raising capital, you're moving towards some type of event. How do you need to be guiding your people? What do you need to be preparing them for as they move towards an IPO? What's like that the top 10 things or top few things to address? Number one, hands down, is communication. You need to have a good communication plan about what you're doing, how you're putting it together, and making sure people feel calm and all too. It's a new world. You know, you have a lot of more regulations and all too when you do go public, and they're not used to that. They're not used to like basically all that reporting that has to be done quarterly and all too. So that communication is number one. Number two is making sure that, honestly, I think you should put a lot of time and effort into having a strong HR system in regards to knowing where all your employee files are at, making sure all your agreements are up to speed, making sure that you really have a good salary banding, making sure your compensation reports are accurate and you have done that research. You know, right now for life sciences, most people use Radford. That's like the cream of the crop out there. A lot of people never take the time to do a true, you know, compensation analysis to make sure that people are being properly paid. That is going to be a key, key issue. How does recruiting change, Marsha? You and I observe companies staffing up, you know, building up before they go public in anticipation of that, you know, broader commercialization or growth effort. How does recruiting change when you're moving towards that IPO or transaction? A great question. So we see a lot of activity that happens, but then that 60, 90 day mark, it changes a little bit because what happens is you want to make sure like, you know, the equities and all too, um, that's included in the agreements. And sometimes depending upon what that agreement says, you know, that there's a little timeline in there. And sometimes those people don't get included in that. And that is unfortunate when that happens. So you want to make sure that that recruiting happens like six months beforehand. Now, the biggest key factor you want to make sure you have, obviously, is your CFO, but a CFO that understands a public company. And a lot of times I find companies have good controllers, but they don't have the CFO. So that is a, a key, key part of this to make sure it works well. Great point. Yeah, there's so much stuff. There's so many pieces to this, Greg. And I just would say, make sure so you have a recruiting strategy. Um, when an investor basically is going to go and looking to make sure this is public and everything is so copacetic, you want to make sure too you have a recruiting strategy. That just doesn't mean basically, you know, hiring, yada, yada. This is actually truly, um, it's almost like a business plan in regards to your people. So you have all of your positions and what time, I, like what quarter for worst first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, when you are bringing aboard those people, that is going to be very helpful for your investors to show that you're putting that time and money into it because as soon as you have that IPO, a lot of money gets basically put into the company. So it's figuring out how to use that money. Okay. And what we're finding is that they spend a lot of that money too on these high, high, high level individuals that can backfire on you sometimes too, because you want to make sure people understand about pulling up your sleeves and still moving to that, the, I guess, the rainbow there. Because a lot of times people don't understand what that means to be super resourceful and I would say patient as well as agile. Great. Very helpful. Thank you, Marsha. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Greg, are you ready for some questions that I have for you? Please. It'd be great. 
Okay, awesome. So there's a few that I have here that I think are very helpful for um, your audience to hear. One of them, what are some of the key changes to the equity that an executive needs to pay attention to if their company is moving towards a transaction? No, it's so often overlooked, Marsha. One of the things you and I observe is these founders and executives get so heads down focused on moving towards that event, growing the company, raising capital and hiring people that they often fail because of lack of time or inclination to step back and say, what, what do I need to do with my own equity? And how do I make sure the people who are helping me move this uh, are making the right choices? So I think it depends first on what's the outcome going to be. Obviously in your early stages, you're just growing a great company. You're trying to build, trying to raise capital and just trying to move forward. But if you get a clear sense that, that the direction is a sale or an acquisition, I think you really want to begin to educate your employees about the tax implications or make sure they're getting educated about the tax implications because there's a very significant difference between short-term gains, which are taxed as ordinary income, which are much higher than long-term capital gains, which are historically lower than ordinary income tax rates. This is gonna become more important, Marsha, after 2021, because we believe meaningful tax law changes are occurring in the coming years. So educating your employees to understand the nature of their equity if it's going to be sold, what are the tax implications? More importantly, what are some things they could be doing about it to accelerate some deductions or create some offsetting tax mitigation strategies that they would find very useful in an educational forum? If the path is an IPO, that's a whole nother set uh, of educational issues to bring about because they're going to go through what's called a lockup. So once the company goes public, they generally are not able to sell their shares for anywhere from six to nine months. Uh, so they need to understand that. And then depending upon their level in the company, they may be privy to certain information, be what's called an insider. And so they may want to participate in something called a 10 v 51 selling plan. This is a program where they can uh, ordain in advance shares to be sold at future dates at future prices. And it's much more disciplined than just being just selling inside and outside of windows. Some companies, Marshall, will offer what's called an employee stock purchase plan. When a company is public, they will then offer a way for the employees to buy shares at discounts. That's usually a big benefit, and they need to really understand and grasp that. And then finally, the biggest mistake I see when companies go public is executives who don't understand the difference between non-qualified stock options and incentive stock options, because they've got huge differences in, in tax treatment, gifting uh, abilities, so those are, those are the big ones, uh, depending upon what the outcome of the path is. Excellent points, Greg. And two things I want to talk about with that too is one is, you know, one of the big things with HR is actually having like code of ethics training after you go IPO too. That's really important to make sure that you have that in the first three months after you go to an IPO, and then people sign off on that too. But back to what you had mentioned about the training, what would you suggest that where people could get that training? Yeah, and I think I think that's really bringing in um, a, a consulting firm to do a lunch and learn, making sure that the content's available online. There are scores of information online, podcasts, webinars like this that explain at a basic level. Uh, there's white papers out there that explain what what these individuals need to know. So you know, there's a fine line, of course, between educating and then telling people what to do. But I think making this information available to them is really important. Couldn't agree with you more. Going back to the communication. Absolutely. All right, Greg, I've got some more questions for you. How should they be thinking about their benefits in compensation plans changing at an individual planning level? You mentioned a little bit about that. Could you go, go on a little further? 
Yeah, the biggest changes, Marsha, we see there tend to be more around some of the employer benefits, around the insurances. And, and they typically are good changes, actually. So when a company is earlier stage and, and growing seed capital and trying to move to that next level, you and I observe they generally have a pretty lean benefits plan, maybe some very basic life insurance, maybe a disability platform. Uh, often we don't see things like health savings accounts until a company grows to a certain level. But I think it's, it's important to then evaluate what they've got on their own in terms of their own life and disability and, and insurances maybe with their spouse uh, before they elect choices within the new uh, entity, the new company's plan. And a couple of the really important things with life insurance are portability. You know, are policies portable? Because especially when an executive gets into their 50s, they may have become more uh, less insurable depending upon health issues. And if a policy is portable that they can take with them after, that's a huge benefit. I'd say the biggest gap I observe, Marcia, is on the disability side because many executives in this space, this early uh, market, early growth, growth company stage, they tend to move for two, three, four, five companies before they retire. And, and disability paid by the company is actually taxable to the employee if, if they are, God forbid, disabled. And oftentimes, um, these, these kind of basic employer disability plans are not specific to the specific income needs of an executive or the roles and functions that, that he or she may do on a regular basis. So having a degree of portability, but building what's called own occupation verbiage into the long-term disability program is really important. If they've got the ability to, to, to put some specificity with their roles and functions, that's a huge difference. And the other one is, how they handle a health savings account. Now, HSAs are typically offered by slightly larger companies, um, but most people, Marsha, use them like an FSA account where they put money in, then they use it and spend their medical bills. They put money in and spend their medical bills. But actually, there's a triple tax benefit of thinking of your HSA, like your 401k. What do I mean by that? You put the money in pre-federal tax. The money grows federally tax-free, not deferred, but free. If it's used for medical expenses, then it's withdrawn tax-free if it's used for medical expenses in your retirement, which is typically when people need more medical cares in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. So we educate our clients to think about the HSA like a 401k, put the money in there and don't use it. Put it in investments, let it grow so that maybe you have 70, 80, $100,000 by the time you retire that's now in a separate bucket that you can use for medical expenses in retirement, which you'll likely need more of than when you're in your pre-retirement years. You know, I think a lot of people don't know that too, Greg. And it's a, it's a shame because it's a really great tool that companies can use. And then when you use a high deductible plan on the benefit side and all too, that HSA can come in handy so many times. I don't think people realize that half the time. So those are great, great, excellent points with that too. One more question for you, Greg. What considerations arise with retirement plans during such a change? Yeah, this too, Marsha, we observe, you know, busy executives when, when we finally get to sit down and talk to them about their pre-transaction planning, just because they've been to, you know, three or four or five companies in their career, they have a profit sharing plan here, an old 401k here and there, and their, their things are really spread out. So it's important to understand what are your options? So if your company is acquired, now there's a new, a new company, uh, or you go through an IPO, maybe there's a change in your 401k vendor, you generally have a few different choices if there's a change in your retirement plan provider. The first one is leave it there. 
and that's fine. There's no harm. I mean, unless the balances are really small, there's no there's no a detriment necessarily to leaving it there. Again, it just makes maybe record keeping consolidation a bit more challenging. Uh, you could also move it to your new company's 401k plan. Some people who use their 401ks for borrowing features uh, like to have those all in sort of one current employer plan. The downside there is you're going to be limited to that employer's menu of choices versus the third option, which is what we see most executives do when they leave a company or when their 401k provider changes, they roll it to their IRA. And there are several reasons why there's a benefit to doing that. The first is you have a much greater choice of investment choices from a, a variety of ETFs and mutual funds and individual equities, whereas your, your incumbent provider generally is required to give you a menu of anywhere from you know, 12 to 25 investment choices. So you have more choice. Number two, we observe as executives, as they get a little bit older, when they can sort of see the finish line to retirement, they want to get more conservative. They want to put some money in a protective component because they're still taking some risk with the equity component of this business. So an individual retirement account, an IRA, gives you the ability to, Marsha, to really put things like individual bonds, where you know a certain amount of your money is going to be fixed and guaranteed if we have a market pickup like we had in the financial crisis or in the beginning of 2020 with the pandemic. And then the third reason is the ability to do an IRA to Roth conversion. I was mentioning the tax laws changing. And again, for people who are in higher income brackets, these rates are going to be going up and going up meaningfully. So this is actually a very good year to consider moving some of your IRA to a Roth where you'd pay the initial tax liability upfront, but then all future growth would be tax-free, but then it's withdrawn tax-free and whatever's left would go to your heirs tax-free as well. So a few different choices, a few things that they may want to understand and consider. So you bring up a good point, you know, because I'm a big Roth person myself. Um, but a lot of people, I don't care what their background is, they don't really understand the difference. Could you just go into that little detail? Yeah, yeah. So the regular, a regular IRA or regular 401k, that money is put in before taxes hit, and the monies grow tax deferred, and that's fine. Uh, but when you begin to take the money out, and you must by age 72 you pay ordinary income tax on every dollar plus the growth that's accumulated. And so depending upon your other sources of income and your asset level, it, you, know, you could still be paying a meaningful amount of income tax on that. Whereas when you convert a regular IRA to a Roth, you pay tax on that portion that you convert in this calendar year. And so you, you know, that's to be clear, that's a tax liability, but then all future growth is income tax-free. So the longer you don't touch it, the more it's compounding tax-free. But then if you do choose to pull it out, it's withdrawn income tax-free at your date. But then again, if in terms of legacy planning, if it's an objective to leave something to your children or your beneficiaries, there's no better asset to inherit than a Roth IRA because that withdrawal is completely tax-free. We like Roth 401ks too because they're unlike the Roth IRA, which has an income ceiling, the Roth 401k has no income ceiling. So you can be a highly compensated executive and still put money in with post-tax dollars that grow tax-free in a Roth 401 I think that's a, an important piece because I think when people are picking up their plans and all too, um, they just want to get a plan in action without realizing that there's so many options out there and all too. So I think that's very helpful as well as like the Biden administration is changing a lot. And we just did a, um, a benefits uh, survey with all of our clients in regards to, you know, what they offered. And we realized like the Philadelphia market is going to get even tighter in regards to talent. 
And we tell people like make pay attention to your people now because it's only going to get worse. So take make sure you're engaging them and all. Make sure your benefits too are um, competitive out there. And so I had shared this with one of our clients, and they were pretty good with most part, but a lot of them don't offer that HSA. And and I think that they don't know enough behind it and why it's so important as not only as a tool for your employees for recruiting, but also as an investment tool. Um, so I think it's been interesting to see about that. But you guys offer that and you share experience behind that in training too? That's right. We do help people guide them through the decision-making, the thought process regarding an HSA. And it really is, a, it's a wonderful wealth-building tool and tax planning strategy as well. I think that's awesome. I think also one of the things we find out after you go IPO, you want to make sure that all your employment agreements are all lined up properly too. What we find a lot of times when a company is starting that their agreements are all over the place and there is no consistency and that's a big boo-boo. And I want to make sure that people really do realize that and have a place where they're, they're easy to find and understand and all too, as well as they're like, balance with you, they're not in competes um, because that gets sticky too in non-solicitations to make sure that they are updated, signed off on, because um, people are still going to try to pull your people and you want to make sure that you have certain agreements in place. Well, Marcia, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and your wisdom. Really good insight in the discussion today. And we appreciate all of you who are taking a few moments uh, to listen today. And if you have any questions, Marcia and I'd be happy to answer. Thank you, Greg. Saren Strategic Partners is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Sarian Strategic Partners and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims, and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data or other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Sarian Strategic Partners and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.